wherever you go in this country, if you're treating this material as waste, you're giving them a proposition that it's hard to see anybody accepting. If you're going with a recycling proposition, it's a completely different proposition. Whatever state hosts that facility would literally become the largest clean electricity fuel supplier in the country, one of the largest in the world. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about nuclear reprocessing, recycling spent nuclear fuel, and making our most reliable carbon free energy source more sustainable. My guess says only 4% of the original fuel is lost through reprocessing. That's a lot of good fuel to simply throw away. If you look up why doesn't the U.S. recycle nuclear fuel, the answer that comes up says that it was perceived as not cost effective and could lead to nuclear weapons proliferation. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter prohibited it. Well, if it's good enough for them, fast forward to today and we have nearly 90,000 metric tons of waste scattered across the country, on site at our nation's nuclear plants. This waste was supposed to be disposed of according to that Carter declaration. It hasn't. My guest says Yucca Mountain will never see a drop of waste stored there. It wouldn't matter anyway because Yucca is already too small for all the outstanding waste there is. On top of that, the fund to dispose this waste, ratepayer funded, isn't enough for even one Yucca Mountain. Oh, and the government, us again, are being fined every year for not taking the waste away. Is it any wonder that my guest, who spent most of his career in government, says the answer for nuclear reprocessing should come from the private sector? He says his solution is unlike any other state-funded facility on Earth. It's lean, efficient, and designed to maximize reprocessing for several industries, including cancer treatments. It turns out the solution for our spent fuel problem is to develop ways to create innovating isotopes. My guest today is Ed McGinnis, CEO of Curio, a nuclear technologies company based in Washington. I interviewed Ed for episode 63 back in July 2019 when he was Assistant Secretary for Nuclear at the Department of Energy. It's a conversation I've referenced several times with guests in later episodes. Curio hopes to do a lot of things, but is primarily focused on building the nation's first nuclear reprocessing facility. It's not without legal and logistical challenges, which I'll discuss at the end of the interview, but to hear Ed tell it, there's really no other choice. We also get into a little talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is still ongoing at the time of this recording. Ed shares some inside knowledge that I don't believe many folks know about in regard to Ukraine's dependence on Russian nuclear technology. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ed McGinnis. We're here with Ed McGinnis, CEO of Curio. And Ed, last we spoke was 2019 in the summertime. You were part of the senior leadership at DOE. Since then, there was an election. So catch us up on your journey over the last two and a half years. 
Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here and pleasure to speak with you again. In the past two years, it's been a great time for me personally and professionally. When we last met, I was in the Office of Nuclear Energy, acting as Assistant Secretary of Nuclear Energy. And then I went on to work at the White House as the Executive Director of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, which was a wonderful, just amazing experience. After that, and shortly after the election, I returned to the Department of Energy. I served for a fairly short period of time as director of the Office of Engineering and Technology within the Office of Science. Following that, after 30 years working at the Department of Energy, I decided to retire and go into the private sector. I couldn't resist. I saw an opportunity where I thought I could make a real significant impact. And I've always felt as though I had not left it all on the field quite yet on nuclear. I can't help but to think about the incredible gift that the previous generations, when nuclear energy was developed for peaceful purposes under President Eisenhower in the 50s and the incredible legacy that was left. But as all good things, they don't last forever. I felt as though we really need to do everything we can to leave nuclear energy on a really good footing. Frankly, the second nuclear era, as we call it in Curio right now. And one of the greatest challenges that has been, frankly, an albatross around the neck of the U.S. nuclear energy sector. We cannot do that if we don't come up with an effective plan for dealing with what many call our nuclear waste, which is anything but nuclear waste. It is one of the most valuable stockpiles of clean energy in our country. That is enough equivalent energy to power our country for 100 years. Ed, wanted to talk about what Curio's up to, and you talked about waste. I read your op-ed in the Washington Examiner where you say, quote, we can turn a 10,000-year problem into a manageable 300-year project. I think we understand the status of the 10K-year option, but what's the 300 mean? How would something be a 300-year project? Yeah, the 300-year project I was referring to is the very, very small remaining amount of highly radioactive materials that would be left as a result of our curio approach to recycling our nation's used nuclear fuel. And the 4% is what we call fission products. When we recycle in curio is to extract the maximum amount of energy value and products from what has been treated as waste, commoditize it and put it into the market where we're not only extracting the energy value from the used nuclear fuel that otherwise would need to be stored at least for 10,000 years, but actually is still radioactive to the point where you can have human exposure for about 130,000 years. With a recycling approach, you're actually eliminating through consumption as energy, all of the long-lived multi-thousand-year radioactive elements that would otherwise have to be stored. That for present fission product, even that, however, would only need to be stored, I say only, for about 300 years. With the decay, the materials would be safe for individuals to be exposed to. The 10,000-year problem is the NRC's requirement for safely securing through a once-through fuel cycle the used nuclear fuel that's being treated as waste now, such as the Yucca Mountain effort that occurred and is no longer moving forward. With the recycling approach, which makes all the sense in the world. You're literally left with 4% of that waste that only would need to be stored for at most 300 years. 
it sounded to me, Ed, like Yucca Mountain may only be able to serve that purpose for the 4%, as you put it, because your website says the accumulated spent nuclear fuel already exceeds the capacity of Yucca Mountain. I don't think anything's even in there yet. So was that intentional? Did they undersize Yucca Mountain? What's the design there? And what do you Yucca think we're with it now? Right. The limit for Yucca Mountain, which, by the way, is politically unworkable. That's the view of this administration and the previous administration, and it's very likely to be the case in the future. There's no material in there now and likely never going to be. But the law of the land right now sets a 70,000 metric ton max storage capacity in that repository if it were ever to be built. It was set frankly, within a legislative perspective for probably, I would say, more political reasons than technical. Yes, you have heat load issues and space issues, but I would say that's not really the reason why the limit was set at 70,000. The prevailing reason believed is because there was, from a policy perspective, they did not want Nevada to be seen as the single place where all of the country's waste was going to be put into that one site which means given we already have 86,000 metric tons of used nuclear fuel in 75 locations and 35 states around the country approximately. We're adding about 2,000 metric tons a year to the overall sum total of materials in the United States that's coming from our fleet of 93 reactors right now. What that means is that even if we were to do something like a Yucca Mountain, one would not be enough. If we continue to treat it as waste, we would probably need at least two, if not three, repositories if they were set at 70,000 metric tons, which is a financial so enormous, it's hard to even absorb. Even right now, the amount of money that has been collected has been about $28 billion in equity from ratepayers around the country receiving electricity and essential tax mill per kilowatt hour put on nuclear reactors that are selling electricity. But the sum total of what's called the nuclear waste fund is about $47 billion right now. That includes interest on the equity that was collected from ratepayers. The Department of Energy in 2008, I believe, it was estimated that a cost of one single repository like Yucca Mountain would be close to about $100 billion. That's in 2008. The waste fund is $47 billion. That's not even half of what would be needed for one repository, much less two. During the meantime, the Department of Energy or the U.S. government, I should say, is paying out now near almost a billion dollars in court-assessed fines a year for failing to pick up the used nuclear fuel from the various utility sites around the country because the law of the Nuclear Waste Policy Act said that in 1998, I believe it was, the Department of Energy was supposed to begin retrieving the spent nuclear fuel or used nuclear fuel and take it to a repository. Obviously, that didn't happen. The utilities had already paid, in their view, the cost for taking that fuel off their site. And so the courts agreed with them eventually and said the U.S. government is liable for the costs associated with the utilities, cost for continuing to securely and safely store that used nuclear fuel. And if we do a consolidated interim storage, which is the next step, and I think that's an important first step, we're going to spend a lot more. So Curio, the reason why I did retire from government is because because I thought this was the single greatest unaddressed issue holding back nuclear energy. And it is a policy issue that goes all the way back to President Carter. It is not a technical issue with regards to recycling. If it were that, we wouldn't see the leading nuclear countries around the world, France, Japan, China, the UK, Russia, 
recycling or have recycled. And they recycle because it absolutely makes total sense. Why would you take perfectly good used nuclear fuel where you only use about 4% and then you're literally not only throwing it away, putting in a mother earth, but it comes out at arguably one of its highest states of radiotoxicity you're ever gonna have with that material. From an environmental perspective, it makes no sense. If you recycle it, you dramatically reduce the radiotoxicity and the long-lived materials and you eliminate much of it. It's like taking a fighter jet and flying it for a month and throwing it away. So my view is it is time to address this issue. We have all the means to recycle it and not leave this as a legacy. Sure. So it looks to me like we have an issue with Yucca Mountain. There's not enough room for it. We also can't put anything in there. So I think that really is what dovetails with what seems to be Curio's mission here. Are you proposing a recycling facility, a single facility? Yes. And the reason why we say a single facility, from our perspective, the economics make the best sense when you have a larger facility scaled up in recycling. In our case, it would be 4,000 metric tons a year. The facility would be the size of like the SoFi Stadium that we saw hosting the Super Bowl. It's a small footprint. This is totally different. This is not your state-owned nuclear recycling facility in any shape or form. For our approach, we have taken a very different approach from the other nuclear recycling facilities around the world, including, for example, La Hague in France. It's the size of a small city, but every one of these recycling facilities, these are all developed, conceived, and run by state-owned corporations or state-overseen. I've been 30 years in government. I understand we do incredible things, and some things we don't do well, and some things we shouldn't even try to do. We do great high science in the Department of Energy in the labs. Are we good entrepreneurs and business developers where we're going to take a clean slate and say, how do we absolutely maximize the value of a material like used nuclear fuel, minimize costs, but maintain high quality reliability, safety, and security? And how do we monetize every isotope possible in this material and bring it to market, make it self-sustaining and self-financing ultimately long-term, where we're protecting the taxpayer. Our approach is a compact facility, a high-performance facility that is based on modular, integrated, semi-autonomous systems, and that would be all we would need to recycle our entire nation's used nuclear fuel and turn it into nuclear fuel for the very same reactors that were taking the used nuclear fuel from, and also bring out multiple other products. Advanced nuclear fuel for the new reactors coming in, which is based on what we call transuranic-based fuel. We call it true fuel. And we would also extract for other products, Neptunium-237 that would be used to produce plutonium-238 for this burgeoning space-based industry. And then we have a additional products that from an entrepreneur's perspective, if I were in government, frankly, I would not have thought about it. Whatever state hosts that facility would literally become the largest clean electricity fuel supplier in the country, one of the largest in the world. It would provide 40% of our entire nation's nuclear fleet's fuel requirements. And then the fourth would be isotopes that are in very high demand right now to fight cancer through targeted alpha therapy. There's a huge demand for that. And then also we're looking at the potential of even taking that 300-year problem I said. We're already talking to some transformational battery companies where literally in the future, you could have a scenario where your batteries will outlive you. I did want to go back and mention one other thing about, you mentioned Nevada and Yucca Mountain. I I would argue that it's not just the limit 
and the size and not even the objections put forth by certain stakeholders in leadership in Nevada that oppose and continue to this day, certainly to oppose Yucca Mountain. I would argue one of the most important reasons something like Yucca Mountain is not acceptable is because of the 10,000 and 130,000 year problem, like I said. Even if you provide them with financial incentives, which I would say has been woefully inadequate, and our business model for Curio flips that on its head and argues for a strong revenue return to the communities. The problem is, wherever you go in this country, if you're treating this material as waste, you're giving them a proposition that it's hard to see anybody accepting. If you're going with a recycling proposition, it's a completely different proposition. What's not to see that as an incredible thing with the revenue and with the jobs? Yeah. The big question I would have for a facility like this is, it sounds to me like transporting waste is a nightmare. So how are you going to navigate the logistics of transporting this kind of waste to a central facility over multiple states? And then I guess you're going to have to also transport that 4% of waste out. Logistically, how is that going to work? Well, first of all, as I said before, much like the political issues that have kept nuclear from really realizing its full potential because we treat it as waste and it's really not, and we have the technical means, there are corollaries to the transportation issue. How many people realize that every day in this country, nuclear material, including nuclear material that is treated as waste right now, we've been transporting nuclear material for decades on rail, on trucks, DOD does it routinely. So does the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. In addition, I would say the Department of Energy, kudos to them, they have taken it upon themselves in Congress appropriating this and directing them to develop safe, secure rail cars that are being developed specifically to transport the used nuclear fuel coming out of our nation's commercial light water reactors. There's two different programs and both of them are going to be ready in the 2028 timeline, which is perfect for us. Is it something that we need to focus on? Absolutely. Do we need to have very strong planning? Absolutely. Sure. All right, Ed, let's get into some current events. So let's just start off with DOE under Joe Biden. Where's Jennifer Granholm and the Biden administration on the nuclear issue? And you think with their emphasis on climate change, climate change, climate change, that they're all for it. But I've been surprised before. And you were in both administrations. What did you see? There. Well, I want to compliment and give a shout out to Secretary Granholm for making such a clear and unequivocal set of statements in the past that we just essentially cannot effectively address and meet our climate challenges and targets for greenhouse emissions reductions without nuclear. We need this incredibly important generation resource in our country. She has rightly, in my view, said that nuclear energy must be a part of our efforts and we should do everything we can in a public-private partnering manner to support a healthy, vibrant nuclear energy sector for the future. Yeah. Then getting to Ukraine, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast will go back into older episodes. And so I want to let all the listeners know that at the time we're recording this, we're about one week into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're not really sure where things are going to land. But in these opening days, there's been a lot of talk about how Europe put themselves in a bad position here. You know, Germany getting rid of their nuclear plants in favor of oil and gas whenever renewables aren't functioning. So it's all coming from Russian oil and gas. What does the Ukraine example say about 
energy policy, both over there and domestically here in the United States. It's an incredibly important example to look at and to see that journey that Ukraine has gone through since it got its independence in the early 90s and its journey of trying to get out from under the energy chokehold, among other things, that Russia's had over Ukraine. And also how important it is to have nuclear energy as a key element for dealing with climate and energy security. Because when you have a nuclear reactor in your country, that is a domestic generating source of electricity that generates electricity in a way no other power source does. It's the only generating plant that generates electricity that can go nonstop without stopping, literally, for 18 to 24 months. You have energy security immediately. You don't have to worry for 18 to 24 months whether someone's gonna cut off your natural gas supplies. With regards to Ukraine, I have personal experience with many good friends from Ukraine. I've been to Ukraine probably eight to 10 times at least, and I started working with them when I was Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Nuclear Energy Policy and Cooperation in Ukraine, and that was back in 2007. And one of the key programs that I was involved in was to help Ukraine diversify away from dependence on Russia for nuclear fuel. Many people don't realize that Ukraine has 15 nuclear reactors at four different plants. I've been to three of those plants. It represents over 50% of the electricity for Ukraine. Even with Chernobyl as that tough, dark time, they found a way to safely operate the other reactors. Since then, they've performed important roles. The challenge was, and still with everything unfolding, what we did know back then is when Ukraine got its independence, it had this large fleet of Soviet-designed reactors and all the fuel was being provided by Russia. And even virtually all of the used nuclear fuel was being handled and taken back to Russia. There was double dependence, more than that, on Russia. We started working with them. The Department of Energy received funds from Congress to find a willing U.S. company or companies that would be able to develop and qualify nuclear fuel that could be operated in Russian design reactors. That company is Westinghouse. At least six are now operating with Western-style Westinghouse nuclear fuel. And that second double chokehold they had was the used nuclear fuel. If they don't have a place to take the used nuclear fuel, they would have to shut down the reactors because of a lack of space. There was another company called Holtec, kudos to them, virtually all on their own in this case. They worked with and received support, advocacy from the U.S. government, including me, to build a national used nuclear fuel storage site where they no longer had to depend on Russia. Russia absolutely treated U.S. companies trying to get into Ukraine as a direct commercial threat, if not more. It was a rough and tumble market. I like to say it was the roughest market that I had ever experienced in the world because you're going head to head, not against a Russian company, but a Russian state because it's a Russian state-owned company. And they will pull no punches and trying to scare the Ukrainians from wanting to use and rely on Western-style nuclear fuel because the market and geostrategic, I think, in Russia's eyes are all mixed in and it's all one big geostrategic game. And nuclear is a really, really important tool that Russia, China, and others use, which is why I continue to say 
It's not just for climate. It's not just for energy security and electrification. It's geostrategic that we need to maintain a healthy nuclear energy sector. We need to have it sustainable with a circular economy where we recycle it and not shoot ourselves in the foot and have stranded waste and treat it as it is, as use nuclear fuel and maintain our leadership globally. Because if we're not leading in nuclear, rest assured, China and Russia will set the safety and security standards, and they will also set the precedent on how nuclear is used. And it won't be, in many ways, the way we would ever condone. Very good. All right. Ed McGinnis, Curio, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Ed McGinnis, CEO of Curio, a D.C.-based nuclear technology company. I asked Ed about the logistics of building a nuclear reprocessing facility, but I didn't ask specifically if it was legal to build one. After the interview, Effort offered some clarification via email. He said there's no ban on nuclear recycling, but the law does require all spent fuel to be sent to a repository like Yucca Mountain. What would have to happen is there would have to be a change in the law to allow the title for the fuel be transferred to a recycling facility. I'm guessing this part is where Ed's years in government will come in handy. We wish them the best. I want to thank Ed for his time as well as Roma Duravi at Duravi Strategies for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures in this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests have sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 130. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how solar companies are getting the most out of sunlight by adjusting their angles. Until then, I'm Jay Dowenhauer. We'll see you next time.